When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and we have to accept it. We have to admit it. The Championship League is finally over for another year. Well, <laughs> the ranking event version anyway. Uh, 21 days of action at Leicester, the Morningside Arena there. And Luca Brussel is the champion. Congratulations to him. Um, he's a typical example of what a lot of the players are like, actually. Off table, he's quite quietly spoken, quite a normal kind of guy. Out in the arena, hard as nails. And he proved that, certainly on the last day. Not an easy tournament to win, uh, the Championship League. You know, the matches are very short. If you get off to a bad start, you're under pressure. But he rose to the occasion, beat Luning in the final. And, of course, uh, it's a ranking event, so it's his uh, third victory in a ranking tournament. First one, he had his dad with him, Carlo, who, uh, you know, sat very nervously watching the whole time. It was nice for him to be able to share the moment with him. So congratulations uh, to Luca. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was a very enjoyable tournament. Um, th- th- for me, one of the big stories on the last day was actually the the last match in the group that Luca was in. He had to beat Jiazing Tong, who played beautifully the whole event. I mean, really, really impressively. So like seven or eight centuries he made. Um, he had to beat him 3-0. He was 2-0 up, but Zhaoxing Tong was firmly in control of the third frame. I mean, not only a long way in front, but balls were very awkward. They're on cushions. One of those frames that, you know, you couldn't see him losing, but he started to snatch at a couple. He had a couple of good chances to win the frame, missed a couple of reds by some distance using the rest, and started to feel the pressure. And um, Luca made a nice clearance to win the frame, and, and that's what he needed. He needed a 3-0 win. So I thought Zing Tong was going to win the whole thing, and I think he should have been in the final. Um, he'll look back on that and, and see it as a chance missed. And people can say, well, you know, it's only the Championship League, why would he be bothered? Well, it, it, it's the exact opposite, actually. It was pressure that stopped him, because be, that was the only match he played, really, in the whole event, where the result was absolutely critical. He had to get, essentially, a frame, Um 3-1 the high break would have come into it but he'd made a 1-3-8 so he was sitting pretty on that score um, so he only needed to win a frame and he didn't and it's a slight concern I remember at the Tour Championship when he lost quite a big lead in his match there uh, now we're only talking a couple of matches you can't say it's a pattern yet but he should have been in the final and he wasn't and I think if he had been in the final he would have won it so just a, an observation, really. Hopefully, um, you know, he'll sort of learn from it. He's still, even though he's UK champion and he, he's won two titles, we, we sort of forget he is still young and he's still finding his way. But anyway, um, it was a... I enjoyed the whole thing. I was there the whole time. Um, we did come home in between. <laughs> we weren't just in Leicester, but um, 
yeah, it was a, a very enjoyable event. Thank you to the team at Matchroom Multisport, who worked so hard, not just on that event, but they spent all day, I can assure you, all day working on their other events as well. So, for example, they're planning the US Open Pool at the moment. They've had Zoom calls about the European Open Pool that's coming up. They were planning Fishermania, which happened at one of the weekends. It's constant. It's absolutely constant. And um, But they also managed to be incredibly cheerful. And the, the thing about Matchroom is, when you go to their tournaments, you're welcomed in. You're welcomed in as part of their team. They're genuinely happy to see you there. They, they act like you're happy to, they're happy to see you there. And they can't do enough for you. So I want to mention... Emily Fraser, who is uh, the boss there, manager director, she's been on this podcast, spoke to the Champion of Champions last year, and also Phoebe and Jake and Matt and Jay. It's quite a small team, but they do so much, and it's a bit of a shame they can't do more snooker, actually. They're only allowed under the contract to do two tournaments, Champion of Champions and the Championship League. They can do more than one Championship League, but they can only do two named events. It's a shame, because if they got their hands on something like the shootout, I think they could really do something special with that. But anyway, um, I just wanted to, to mention them and say thank you for, for looking after us uh, in Leicester. What I did in between uh, coming home and doing this is, I, as I live in Birmingham, I went to watch the end of the marathons yesterday, which were in the city centre. Um, fantastic occasion, um, huge numbers of people, and a reminder that sport really brings people together. It's really only sport and music that can do it on a global scale and just looking amongst the crowd there all sorts of people all sorts of ages all sorts of backgrounds coming together to watch this uh, very special event and, and uh, as an aside I, I cannot believe how, how fast <laughs> you know we've been running for two hours how fast these guys run particularly even you know obviously they're running for times but I mean the gold medalist he, he, he was clearly there was no one behind him for about five minutes so he was clearly going to win but uh, he absolutely legged it to the finish uh, but it got me thinking, um, that's a technical term by the way, late to, to a finish, but uh, it got me thinking what an absolute failure of leadership over decades in Q-sports, that snooker is not in the Commonwealth Games and other Q-sports are not in the Commonwealth Games. Snooker is played around the Commonwealth, it's played in Canada and Australia, South Africa, these sort of places and obviously the UK, but it's never been in and you know things like lawn green bowls are in and, and good luck to all those sports that are, but how is it that we haven't by this stage, managed to get snooker in. Never mind the Olympic Games, the Commonwealth Games. And it's going back decades. It's going back to missed opportunities. I remember they went out to uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in the 90s uh, to try to get interest going then. It didn't quite happen. And now the problem is, and this is why I'm not sure snooker will be in the Olympics in anyone's lifetime listening to this. Now the problem is there's been a schism between in amateur snooker between the IBSF, which are the um, long-standing sort of amateur body and uh, this new body, the World Snooker Federation. There's two World Amateur Championships in effect now. Um, and there's an umbrella body for Q-Sports. It's called the World Confederation of Q-Sports. And they, in effect, were set up to try and get snooker in the Olympics. And they feature governing bodies from all different sports. And they have chosen to go with the IBSF, which is why at the recent World Games, which is an event for... IOC accredited sports that are not in the Olympic Games. It was in Birmingham, Alabama. Not not the Birmingham I'm in, but uh, one in America. Um, that is why in that there were no top players playing because the snooker uh, field was set by the IBSF. So at the moment, even if snooker somehow miraculously did get in the Olympics, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be the top professionals 
playing in it. It would be people affiliated to, if you like, the other side. Um, which is a great shame that we've ended up in this mess. Um, and people will say, well, we don't need it in the, in the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. But that's missing a massive point, which is that these games, these events, are shop windows. They're watched by maybe fans of particular sports who are not that interested in snooker, or even people who are not that interested in sport, but they like to be part of national occasions. And it's a chance for people to, for people to discover snooker. It's a chance for us to showcase it and to compete on the same level as these other sports. So it would definitely be a plus, an advantage to snooker to be in these uh, games. But we're not. Uh, we, were in, we were in the Paralympics, um, I think, as recently as 1988. So that was kind of the last hurrah. But um, there have been a lot of missed opportunities. I know Jason Ferguson has definitely done his best. In fact, he's been very passionate about trying to push it forward but it seems he's fighting a bit of a losing battle at the moment and it's a great shame um and as i say you know just a lot of chances over the over the decades have been kind of squandered really anyway on a happier note uh we will be doing another snooker player bingo in this episode which i've already recorded um by the way the, the old two episodes a week that's out the window uh, <laughs> It was a summer special, and it turned out it wasn't that special, because I only did about three. But uh, anyway, uh, we're, we're doing one a week, and, you know, a lesser man than me would say that's still one more than World Snooker Tour produce. Um, not much has been heard of from their podcast for a while. Uh, I'm not saying it's gone off the radar, but they're actually doing an outside broadcast for the Bermuda Triangle shortly. Uh, that's what a lesser man would say. I wouldn't say it. I'm saying what a smaller person than me would say. So we're still doing one a week. And as I say, snooker player bingo coming up, but I'll get to all the emails next week, we've had a few in, but I did want to refer to one here, because I mentioned last week, I ranked Ronnie O'Sullivan's uh, world titles in order, in my, my own order, and uh, we've had an email, extraordinary email here, and I'm probably going to mispronounce your name, but Florian, I'm going to say Hazeli, um, Hazel, uh, Florian, we'll, we'll, we'll call him. He said, I just finished listening, we'll call him that because it's his name, uh, anyway, I just finished listening to your brilliant episode ranking Ronnie's world titles. I really enjoyed the format, i.e. lists. I'm looking forward to your verdict on Henry 7. I may do that next week, uh, Florian. He said, although I agree with you on an emotional level that 2013 was Ronnie's greatest win and a feat that will never be repeated, defending a title after a year away from the game, I've come up with a, a system of my own in the last year or two to rank all world championships since 1975. I chose that year because it originally took into account the ranking of the winner and their opponents, and 1975 was the first year that had a ranking list. I've since gone through many iterations and won't bore you or your listeners with the details, but my system takes into account the following five variables. Okay, so here they are. Number one, mean dominance. Basically, how one-sided the match was, e.g. 10-2 is more dominant than 13-12. 70 plus break for frequency to account for one visit snooker. Number three, 70 plus break against frequency to account for the opponent's strength. Number four, winning margin of difference. A point, point difference in the frames the eventual winner won versus difference in the ones he lost to give one a sense of how close the frames were. So we're talking about frame scores, essentially. Uh, and number five, clutch win percentage. Frames won with less than 27 and against more than 47, or roughly 80% of what is usually needed to win a frame. Points difference. This accounts for winners that grind out their matches. Uh, I hope everyone's following this because Florian put a lot of work into it. So anyway, he says all these are graded on a curve. <laughs> of course they are. And give the following mathematically correct, heavily tongue-in-cheek order for Ronnie's win. So this is his order. He's put, he's crunched the numbers here. I won't, I won't read all that out again, but he's, he's got his own system. 
He's crunched the numbers. And so I'm going to go from seven to one. This is Florian's, uh, very different to, to what I came up with, but this is his order, ranking Ronnie O'Sullivan's world title victories. So number seven, it was his first, 2001. Number six, 2012. Number five, 2004. Number four, 2020. Number three, 2022. Number two, 2013. And number one, 2008. And I'm pretty sure um, I had 2008 very near the end. But anyway, that's Florian's list. He has got... Uh, he, he, as I say, he's through, gone through all the years since 1975. He says, It might surprise you that my greatest ever world champion in this system was Steve Davis in 1983, which, incidentally, is my birth year. Well, of course, Steve, he, he didn't lose that many frames that year, or well, certainly uh, in the final, he, he beat Cliff Thorburn with a second to spare. He says, I now realise this email is way too long to read out on your podcast. Well, I've, I've done it anyway. Uh, but I'd really appreciate it if you could read out at least parts of it and or provide some feedback on my system of judging world champions in general. All the best from Vienna, Austria, where you're shamefully, for us Austrians, not as highly ranked as in Macedonia. You're the long-time listener, Florian. Thank you. Of course, every time I mention a country where we're, we've got a lot of listeners, we seem to drop off a cliff. I think I'm, I may be, maybe the people there think I'm, having, I'm making fun of them. I'm not, so I'm going to assure you. Uh, but anyway, uh, in terms of your system, well, it looks sound to me. Um, I think it's sort of been mentioned before that rankings don't take into account um, the quality of the opposition. So, for example, you know, you can play potentially to get to the world final for qualifiers. If you're in the top 16, it's possible to play all qualifiers rather than maybe four players with one ranking events that season. That that would be more difficult. So that's the sort of thing that clearly has to be taken into account. Uh, but anyway, I think your system, uh, Florian, is uh, is very interesting. And uh, there is a, a document you shared with me which shows the uh, the exact order of things. Uh, interesting that Steve Davis uh, is uh, ranked at number one. I, I noticed from the list that the second, um, 2008, is actually second. 93, which was Hendry winning with a session to spare, uh, he's number four. Number five, John Parrott in 91. And, and number five is Ronnie in 2013. And uh, you've also got a list of world champions um, sort of in order of impressiveness, impressiveness I guess. Um, and it seems from this, if I've read it correctly, that O'Sullivan is the top of the, of the table. Henry second, John Higgins third, then Davis, Williams, Mark Selby. But anyway, very interesting. Uh, and uh, yes, thank you for taking the time because uh, it's a pretty formidable uh, effort, I would say. Um, Colour-coded as well, which is always good. Now, I'm gonna leave, as I say, I'm going to leave the other emails for now because uh, we have pressing issues to get on with, most notably Snooker Player Bingo, uh, which is coming up now. Again, me and Phil Yates. I warn you at the start, someone's hoovering in the background, <laughs> which uh, was a lot, comes across a lot louder um, than it seemed at the time. But it does stop um, after about a minute or two, so uh, bear with us. Um, so, yeah, uh, myself and Phil gathered in Leicester, and this is what we said. So, Snooker Player Bingo's back. The last one was a sensation. Uh, there's people now demanding it becomes a TV series. But anyway, it's out of our hands. Uh, so it's the same same principle, and now one thing that's happened is listeners have written in with suggestions, so the people uh, couldn't accommodate all of them, but there are most of the names on this list people have suggested. 
And as I say, we might have done them before, but anyway, let's onwards, Phil. So one to ten. Okay, I'm going for number eight. Well, n- number eight was mentioned in passing last week. Uh, I can't remember why now, but uh, it's uh, New Zealand's Dino Kane. Well, Dino Kane, he's one of those players, you know. <clears throat> the reason he was mentioned in passing was he beat Steve James. Oh yeah, that's it. Um, ten nine from nine five down at the Crucible. Um, Dean was one of those players who, back in the day, had so many shots. He was a modern player playing in a different era. Um, I don't think he had the best of temperaments in terms of closing out matches, and he did lose a a lot of games that he might have won. Um, But he was a real real good player. And just under the the elite bracket, but very uh, urbane, you know, you like to... A nice glass of wine and a cigar and reading good books and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so he was—I think he was a little bit different from from the norm in that re- regard at the time. He's in the Crucible Almanac. Um, my favourite, possibly my favourite thing in there. Uh, most non-consecutive appearances, I think. So, like, obviously he played there, say eighty-five, not eighty-six, eighty-seven, not eighty, like that. Um, you know, that's something. Yeah, he's one of those <laughs> players who came from a. A country which is obviously you can't get further away from the UK when the game was very UK based and so that was a disadvantage for him but also you know the fact he emerged from New Zealand a really good player as the only one um, at the time a little bit like Tony Drago from Malta he, he played on the rest of the world team I remember yeah. in the old world team cup now that's something you'd never see now why would you have a rest of the world team you'd have well enough teams to go around back then to get an eight-man, or sorry, an eight-team World Cup, you needed a rest of the world, and he was one of they the... Went to, yeah, they, he went to a respot, didn't it? Their final with England. He did, and yeah. he was the player... He was the player, yeah. player concerned. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, what do you think of it? How ludicrous. Rest of the world. <laughs> what does that mean? You need to know who the other seven teams were in the event to know who the rest of the world are. Mm. It, it was just one of those things that now could never happen. Well, it looked terrible. But he also, people may maybe forget this, but he was actually, he, he did a couple of years on the BBC as a commentator in the mid-90s. Um, I think Ted Lowe might have retired anyway, I think there was sort of an opening some, somewhere. And I thought he was really good. He didn't maybe pursue it, obviously he went home again uh, to New Zealand, but I thought he was good. He got a lot of knowledge, obviously. Yeah, a good And like vo- you say, Urbane, he could, he could explain it well. Yeah, good voice, a really good vocabulary, because obviously he was well-read, as I mentioned. The other thing with O'Kane was he played a lot of advanced shots for the time. I well recall he was very good using extreme amounts of side, and that's become conventional now. Back then it wasn't so. Um, he was prepared to play a, a very different game. I'm not saying he was maybe as attacking as the modern crop, but he certainly wasn't defensive. And on occasions when he was playing well, he, he made the, the, the ball talk, he really did. And of course he came very close to winning a world ranking event. Mm losing in the final of the Hong Kong uh, tournament to uh, Mike Hallett, 9-8. That's right. OK, well, uh, so that's number eight. Uh, another number. OK, I'll go for its next-door neighbour, number seven. Well, a name a lot of people will know. Um, and uh, the first winner of the UK Championship, Patsy Fagan. Yeah, well, of course, Patsy Fagan, we see him a lot in tournaments. He comes to finals and things, and the camera goes on him, and, you know, it's the initial... When it is him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there was a one of the commentators. So there's Patsy Fagan, and it wasn't him. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he won in 77. 
Now, back then, you see, the UK Championship these days is considered one of the crown jewels and one of the big world-ranking events on the circuit. But when it started out in 77, it did not have world-ranking event status because it was only for players from the UK or players who were resident in the UK. And so, consequently, whenever you or I or anyone says on commentary, oh, yeah, Ken Doherty was the first ever winner of a world-ranking event, um, from the Republic of Ireland people say no he wasn't no he wasn't it was Patsy Fagan well the reason Fagan isn't is because although he did win an event that became a world ranking event when he won it it wasn't the other thing with Fagan of course that everyone remembers and I actually saw this first hand he had a terrible attack of being unable to release the cue when he was using the rest mm. and let me tell you it was horrible to see I think it could happen to anyone and you just don't know deep inside the, the head, you know, what caused it. But he was just, oh, he was going through the mill and you could see he just didn't want to get the rest out and he did and it was, oh, oh. It was one of those things for any snooker player was really X-rated. It was vile. Mm. He, um... I mean, it was before our time, but they reckon he was a great money player in the early days when there wasn't a sort of professional circuit. You, you would sort of you, you would back him in a money match. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he was as hard as nails. Uh, the other course, the other big story he created. Um, I remember Alex Higgins accused him of slow play on one occasion. Well, on more than one occasion, but of course everyone was slow in relation to uh, to Alex. Uh, but yeah, he, he was a good player for his time, and you know. What, what a great thing to have on your CV, UK champion. Mm. And also now, I mean, he, he, he's always, if you ever see him, he's always immaculately turned out. You know, he, he went through some difficult times um, when his career kind of ended, but he's turned it round and he's, he's one of those people people like to see. You know, he's, he's, he's someone who's associated with the game's past, but, you know, he's sort of earned the respect of people, I think. Yeah, and who knows, you know, the fact he won that tournament, and indeed others as well, you know, that might have paved the way for youngsters in Ireland mm. to believe they could do something in the game and then what was it well 20 years down the line after he won the UK Ken Doherty won the world championship absolutely okay and another number number one <laughs> number one well we've been to New Zealand we're now going to Australia uh, a snooker and billiards player Robbie Folvari <laughs> well I knew Robbie really really well now Robbie Folvari was a very, very interesting character and a good guy as well, actually. Um, he's done some commentary, as you know, on the Australian um, Open in, in um, Bendigo. He was a really good billiards player. Um, decent snooker player, but I thought he was better at billiards. But the thing with him, of course, is that although he never really accepted this, he was very slow. Mm. Um, our good friend and now colleague Neil Folds had a right go at him at the, the British Open on one occasion after a really, really lengthy match. Um, but, you know, he didn't do it to while the opponent. He just didn't. I've seen him play a billiards match, actually, where it was a timed thing, and he was behind, and he, he couldn't quicken up. Mm. Um, that's the, the pace he played at. It was not gamesmanship. It was not... You know, uh, trying to gain an edge to put the other guy off. That was the pace he played at. Now, I remember on one occasion, he played the, at the time, the lengthiest best of nine frame match ever against a Yorkshireman called Ian Williamson. It was at um, Trenton Gardens in Stoke. It's about seven hours. Yeah, yes. I think it was, I think it was uh, seven hours, 14 minutes, I think. How many seconds? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's stuck in my mind. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> 
And the, there were two frames in that. I believe they were the fifth and sixth. They might have been the fourth and fifth. It's not important. The two frames in that match, back to back, were the second and third longest in history mm. at the time. Now, can you imagine all the frames you see played in professional snooker? And the second and third longest ever are played back to back. Well, I was told that, because imagine the session is normally about five hours that they're locked to it. I was told that cause it, they, it was played on three different tables. It was pulled off initially at two each. So they only got four frames in to that first session. I think it had three different referees. Yeah, all, definitely. All, all of whom are now living in some sort of uh, institution. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I suppose, that it, look at the Australian players. They would have looked at Eddie Charlton and thought, well, that's kind of how you play then, is it? Because he was very successful and he was he was slow. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't think Robbie was... Um, Robbie was particularly defensive either. Mm. It was just that he, he took a, a long time to decide on what shots to play. The other thing with him, of course, he was handicapped um, in the sense that he developed this um, condition called decompensating exophoria. Just run, run that past us again. Decompensating exophoria. Wow. Which <laughs> was a problem where his eyesight was compromised by bright light. So... When he was playing snooker, obviously, it clearly wasn't the uh, the ideal environment under those lights. And I know for certain he played a handful, maybe more than a handful of matches, wearing a wide-brimmed hat. Now, not with a corks. <laughs> that would have been very, very <laughs> stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A wide-brimmed hat, which he, he used to put on when he left the table, sort of to shield yeah. his eyes from the light. Um, I remember him playing Ray Edmonds uh, wearing w one of those hats, so that was a that was a good story at the time. So yeah, he was a, a really good egg, Robbie. I, I've had a lot of great conversations with him over the years, and as I say, I must stress when it came to billiards, he was top notch. Yeah, I think he, he was at least twice world champion at billiards. Yeah. I think. And, uh, and you, I was actually we had a question in the other day, um, which I asked Dominic uh, in commentary, who's the best who's the best tour player now at billiards? Because I couldn't think of anyone who played. Apparently, Ian Burns plays billiards uh, so that's, yeah, if anyone was wondering that's, that's the answer apparently officially uh, ok so we've had one seven and eight what's next uh, let's go for number four well I'm glad you picked uh, this player because I, I have a few things to say myself and he until very recently was a tour player Michael Holtz in the commentary box we are supposed to be impartial now I always say occasionally that we try to be and on the vast majority of occasions, we are. But human nature comes in sometimes. I mentioned this, we're at the Championship League at the moment. I mentioned this the other day when Anthony Hamilton was playing. When he won the German Masters, I was so pleased. And I was really pulling for him. And you do sometimes pull for certain players. Now, Michael Holt, for me, and I know for you as well, Dave, is one of those because he's become our friend and he's a, a real ray of, of sunshine to have around the place. He's so funny. Um, and it, we all know as well that He's a, a really, really good player. And I, for one, really do hope that he comes back onto the tour because I think he would be a, a great asset for it. Again, so pleased when he won the shootout. And everyone talks about Michael's implosions when he was well ahead against Steve Davis in the World Championship and lost that match. The games he's lost, which he should have won. The time in China when he was 19-0 behind in the deciding frame against Joe Perry and conceded. The time when he smashed his hand on the table and... Broke his hand. <laughs> so all of those negativity aspects, yeah, we talk about. But he's had some phenomenal wins, and he's had a very, very good career. And I still think he's got something to offer. And he's also offering that now to the world of coaching. And apparently, 
from what I'm led to believe, he's very good. Absolutely. Well, here's the thing. I mean, A, he is a better player than most people on tour. There's about 131 players. He would, should be in the top 40, I think. But he isn't. And here's, here's what I admire about him, OK? We've been here, at, we're at Leicester right now, at the Championship League, and we, we've seen all sorts of players pass through. And if you go in that players' room, you don't have to wait in there too long to hear people complaining about stuff, OK? And various things, and there aren't enough events, this isn't right, that's not right. Michael Holt has dropped off the tour. All he's, The only thing he's blamed is himself. He hasn't blamed the system, he hasn't blamed, you know, obviously the, the China tournaments went and the points coming off that. Hasn't blamed any of that. He said, I didn't get the results, I wasn't good enough. He's not sulking. Like you say, he said, not only has he set himself up as a coach, he's set up his own YouTube channel, which, you know, he's advertising himself, he's doing social media posts, he's trying to drive interest that way. He's already been invited out to Italy to do some coaching there. So he's making the best of a bad situation. Of course he'd rather be on tour. But instead of sulking or blaming World Snooker or blaming, you know, the fact that they're inviting players on or any of that stuff, he just said, I didn't play well enough, so I'm going to spend this year doing something else. He'll play on the Q Tour, he'll play amateur snooker, try and get back on that way. But he's actually trying to, like he came and did commentary, he rang me up about ten minutes after he lost in Q School and said, is there any commentary work, right? And that's, that's a great way to be, to actually be proactive. So I really admire that, actually. And um, good luck to him, you know, he's, uh, he, he's doing his best to still be involved in snooker, still make a living from snooker, but not sort of get down on himself. And he's also always been enterprising, even in his much younger days, he's a qualified fitness instructor, isn't he, we know that. And I think he went to some Mediterranean resorts as well when he was a much younger man and uh, worked there in the summers to, to earn a few quid and basically enjoy himself. So he's always one of those players who, as you say, doesn't moan. Well, he might moan privately. He's moaned to us. But it's only ever about himself. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't yeah. blame other people. He has said, "Look, I wasn't good enough." And you know, there's all sorts of things you say. Well, you know, they're inviting the women on. They're inviting the African champion. All that. No, none of that. I wasn't good enough. I'll accept it. I'll do something else for a year, and hopefully next year I'll be back on. And I really respect that because it's actually quite unusual. Yeah, he's <laughs> it, very self-deprecating in, in, in you know, uh, in any conversation you have. And he's always been one of those players who gets off the couch. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, and like you say, he's had some terrific wins. He beat, uh, he's beaten Neil Robertson at the Crucible. I think he beat Ronnie three times in a year at one point. Commentated on one of those yeah. matches, and that was a cracking contest. They both played well. Yeah, but I, uh, and, and very talented. I, I guess, though, he sort of does prove that pressure is everything in snooker because he has felt it at times. And, it's, you know, everyone's different, and it, in a way, I mean, it does matter how talented you are, obviously, but that's not all it is. And there have been implosions. I mean, he was 8-2 up to Steve Davis at the Crucible, missed a ball, turned around and said, I've gone. He was 8-2 up. <laughs> so, so, but that's all part of the package. He's had a very good career. He won the shootout. We were all delighted for him. We were there, weren't we, um, in Southport the next day when uh, he had breakfast. And all the great and the good were coming to his table to, to congratulate John Higgins coming over. They were all, all at the ranking event winner's table to congratulate him. But, you know, the timing of that with hindsight was typical for Michael because he's not had the best of luck at times either he just won the shootout he was on a real high he went to that players championship in Southport and then of course uh, just a few weeks later the COVID-19 mm. pandemic hit and so all of that momentum he built was dissipated because of the lockdown OK, another number number 10 <laughs> well I can promise you one thing, right? We will be the only podcast, and there's a lot of podcasts now about all subjects, thousands, tens of thousands. I guarantee we were the only, we'll be the only podcast in the world currently talking about Murdo McLeod. <laughs> Murdo <laughs> McLeod. 
Scottish wow. professional. Yeah, Murdo McLeod, yeah. Well, of course, there was a, I think there was a Murdo McLeod who also was a very good footballer. Mm. Um, who was, again, from Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Murdo was from Edinburgh, and he was the first Scottish player, wasn't he, to... Was it to win a match at the Crucible? Yeah, yeah it was uh, 87. It was a couple of days before Henry beat Willie Thorne, I think. So, he, yeah, it was the first, yeah. Yeah, and he also worked in a bakery, I recall. Mm. Now, <laughs> Earning a crust. Yeah. yeah. Now, the other thing is, well, is that... You just mentioned Willie Thorne. Mm. There was that famous match where Willie... Um, I've still actually to nail this down in absolute fact form, but Willie insisted that um, he once played Murdo McLeod and had three centuries and lost. Mm. Um, well, I th I, yes, I, I, did, I looked that up once. I think that was a story that grew legs. Yes. I think he may have had a couple. I think he, he, he yeah. had all the breaks, put it that way. Whether it was as many as, you know, these things do, they grow legs, don't yes. they? Yes. Yeah. The other thing about Murdo was, as well, of course, Scotland became a, a powerhouse in the game. When we went to the 1996 World Cup in Bangkok, they were described by the media, of which we were, we were part, as the dream team. And that's because they were. It was John Higgins, who was then just an established star. He'd just come into that firmament. Stephen Hendry was the man. And Alan McManus, who was the, the consummate professional and consummate match player. And so they won it. A little bit more difficult, uh, difficult for them than it might have been. They beat Republic of Ireland in the final in a, in a quite close match, but they won it anyway. And it took our thoughts back to a decade earlier, or certainly 15 years earlier, when in the World Cup, Scotland were in, A, to make up the numbers, and they were the whipping boys, weren't they? Mm. You've got people like Murdo McLeod, Jim Donnelly, Matt Gibson... Good players. Eddie Sinclair. Eddie Sinclair, yeah, former oil rig worker. Uh, good players, but basically they were the the worst of the home nations mm. um, by some distance. But then Murdo won that match at the Crucible. Hendry, as you say, suddenly became a, a star, and the the whole aspect of Scottish snooker changed. It's an in I mean, there may be no obvious answer to this, but I suppose why did it take Scotland longer? I mean, obviously England had lots of lots of champions. We already mentioned Patsy Fagan from the Republic of Ireland. Northern Ireland had Alex and Dennis. Wales had Terry and Ray and Doug and all those guys. Why did it take until basically, well, mid-80s, late-80s, until, I know they'd have Walter Donaldson, but until a, a sort of modern Scottish star came along? Yeah, I mean, well, I think, obviously Donaldson won two world titles. I don't know for certain, but I've got the impression that he was pretty much a, a lone star, mm. wasn't he, up there? And then, of course, the game exploded in popularity around the mid-80s with the, the Taylor Davis final and then Joe winning in 86 and all that kind of stuff. So then you do need a long period, don't you, before people come through. Obviously, Hendry turned professional at the same time as the, 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 the Joe uh, Johnson victory. So he was established as a, a very good youngster. But then the next generation came through maybe four or five years later. And what a good generation that was. But yeah, maybe it was something to do with the fact that, you know, in Scotland, it genuinely, until the boom of the game, it wasn't that big. No, and also, not pointing the finger at anyone, but, I mean, Hendry, obviously, when he came along, he was young, he did everything right. Some of the older guys, they liked to drink. You know, they weren't necessarily practising all day long. I heard a story, I won't say who it was, but it's been mentioned in, in dispatches there. Uh, a famous Scottish player enjoyed a drink. 
and another Scottish player ran into him in a, in a pub in Glasgow. This was after he retired. Ran into him. He just sat in the corner having a drink. Oh, how you doing? So, how you doing, so and so? I was nearly said his name there. How you doing? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, not too bad. Yeah. Oh, do you, you know, do you, is this your local? Oh no, I've never been in here before. And he turned around the other guy, and there was a picture of him on the wall drinking. <laughs> so it clearly, it clearly had, had been there before. But I think that, that obviously all that changed. And, and with Hendry, and we've seen it with the players that come along, it became maybe more professional. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went to uh, Spencer's Snooker Centre in Stirling on more than one occasion, and that really was a, a regimented, hard-working place. Stephen Hendry famously has said at the Mercantile Credit Classic one year, yeah, he said, I go in, brush my own table, which he did, mm. go in, brush my table, practice, have half an hour off for, actually topically, neighbours, nice. to watch neighbours. Yeah. And then went back in and had another four-hour practice. So, yeah, there was no uh, there was no drinking culture there. Actually, funnily enough, Henry was really annoyed when he said that because the guy who was reporting on the story, who since became a, a quite well-known entertainment reporter, his intro in the local paper up in Blackpool was, uh, Stephen Henry last night reached the last 32 of the Mercantile Credit Classic and then told us he'd got a crush on Carly Minogue. <laughs> and he didn't say that at all. He just no. said he had half an hour off to watch Neighbours. Possibly true, though. Yeah. Uh, the last I heard of Murdo McLeod, he was in the paper well, about ten years ago, um, and his dog had jumped in the river or something, so Murdo jumped in after him. But, uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, ho- hope all is well there. Uh, well, we'll do a couple more. Uh, we've, so we've got left, we've got two, three, five, six, and nine. Five. Number five, this has been another one suggested by a listener, Joe Swale, Belfast Tone. You know, we were talking about Nigel Bond in the last uh, podcast and I think Joe Swale falls into that category as well what a, a genuinely good guy to have around now I think he'd be the first to admit he liked a good time he was a pedanist and you know when he was a young man he loved his life on, on tour but he was never complaining he was always a big smile on the face always very respectful of you and other people and what a good player as well twice at a Crucible semi-finalist mm. I will recall that match he played against Liang Wenbo um, yeah, yeah. At, at the Crucible which was just absolutely gripping uh, Liang of course was the first ever Chinese player to make the, the quarter-finals and he came up against Joe and it really was a, a sensational contest I thought he was going to win a world ranking title um, at the Welsh Open when Ali Carter broke through and mm. won his Swale at 5-3 after the first session and to me he looked definitely the, the better player definitely the more settled and Carter seemed really edgy for obvious reasons and then Carter came back at night and was absolutely sensational he won the next six frames playing brilliantly and so Joe's chance went away but you know we always talk these days about who's the best player yet to win a world ranking title Clearly, top of the list is Jack Lazowski. Well, back in the day, it was Joe Swell. Yeah, and I mean, Mark Allen's had a better career, but actually, Joe Swell could in more one table uh, matches at the Crucible, bizarrely. Mm. Yeah, but the other thing with, with Swell, of course, that marked him down um, as a really fine player was, as you say, his ability to cope with a big occasion, mm. but also his extremely unconventional reaction. Mm. It was a really risky kind of thing. But because of that, he was able to generate a lot of Q power. So, I think he was one of those players. He was actually very friendly with Tony Drago, and, and in one sense, they were quite similar. 
they've got a, a massive gap between their best and their worst. Mm. Joe was always like that. Sometimes you'd see him play and you think, wow, you know, that was pretty terrible. Other times you'd watch him play and you think, that's world beating. Mm. Yeah, he was a very hard competitor, but like you say, if you saw him backstage, he was always laughing and joking. He Normally with Ken, he'd be with Ken Doherty and, and just, like you say, enjoyed himself. He also, of course, had an extraordinary nickname, uh, which, which takes some explaining. Thanks to our, our good friend Alan Hughes, the former Master of Ceremonies, who called him the Outlaw. And you think, what's that about? And, of course, it's, it's from the film The Outlaw Josie Wales, because it sort of sounds like Joey Swale. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of the one of those nicknames you have to, have to explain to people. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you accuse me of this quite often, and, and quite rightly so. Sometimes when it comes to, to nicknames and stuff, it, it was really, really contrived and tenuous. And so when nicknames are like that, normally they just don't work, do they? Mm-hmm. But this one really did. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Joe, I think Joe liked it, and uh, he said he had a sort of couple of little comebacks, didn't he? But um, I, I'm not sure he's sort of interested in senior snooker but I hope he's uh, enjoying himself where he is okay we'll do one more so we've got two three six and nine okay uh, two okay well we end with uh, a former world champion who's now on the pool circuit Alison Fisher I'm glad I picked number two because Alison Fisher's a, a, a good friend of mine and there are so many players in snooker I hold in very high regard and she's really near the top of the list Back in the day when she was dominant in women's snooker, do you remember when Alex Higgins was disciplined and dropped out of the top 16? So, quite correctly, for commercial reasons and for the good of the game in general, when he came back, he wasn't in the 16. So, the Masters, which was then sponsored by Benson and Hedges, wanted Higgins there. And I absolutely agreed with it. It made every sense in the world. So, the only way they could do it was to have a wild card. So he played as the wildcard. So that brought in the wildcard tradition. Anyway, a couple of years down the line, I thought, why don't they get Alison Fisher as the wildcard? Now, this is, what, 20... 30 years ago. Why don't they get Alison Fisher as the wildcard? It would have been terrific. It would have been terrific for her. It would have been terrific for the game. It would have been terrific for the women's game. And it would have been terrific for the sponsors as well because it would have created an enormous amount of publicity. Now, this would not have been a novelty because at the time she'd beaten people like Neil Folds and a lot of other good players as well. So she could have competed. Now, I'm not saying she would have won, but she could have competed. She was always immaculately dressed. She was tremendously professional. She got a wonderful cue action. Everything about her was classy, and that's what the Masters was, classy. She would have fitted in there, fitted in like a a, a glove. And yet, for some reason she was never picked the idea was not poo poo but it wasn't accepted and they just basically went down the rankings with you know players who didn't generate anywhere near the amount of publicity she would have generated and I always thought that was one of the great missed opportunities in snooker okay it was a specific thing she conquered everything in in women's snooker went over to America and there's a sort of myth that Immediately, she was um, top of nine ball pool. It wasn't immediate, but it was quite swift. She basically went over there, intensively played nine ball, got to know the game, which you do need to know as snooker players going into pool tournaments these days have shown. And within a year, she was the person to beat. 
And again, she carried all of that class over there on the WPBA tour. She won tournament after tournament. I think she won over 50 events on the WPBA tour. Um, and throughout her career, she's been... Well, I use this word to describe Alan McManus, and it certainly applies to her as well. Consummate professional. Well, yeah, absolutely. And also, I think, a real tra trailblazer for women's snooker. You look at, sort of, historically, snooker clubs weren't particularly friendly to women. Um, indeed, you know, there were some places women couldn't play. So, you know, it was a sport a lot of women didn't think was for them. Obviously, Mandy Fisher was very important, no relation to the development of, of the women's tour. But they needed someone who could go and sell it. Like Steve Davis, really, in the professional game, they needed someone kind of clean-cut, good as well, who could go out there, you could put on television, who could represent the game. And they couldn't find anyone better than, than Alison. Problem is, and, and people forget this, the Women's World Championship at one point was on live TV. Barry Hearn uh, ran it. But it reached a certain level and it couldn't kind of get any higher. And you could understand why she looked at it and thought, you know, things are not going to get any better, maybe, in the women's game. So she went off to the pool circuit. She did play on the Pro Tour when it was open. Um... Maybe didn't do as well as people may maybe thought. Bearing in mind, she did beat a few top players in, in, in sort of the matchroom league and so on. Um, but is uh, is unusual in the fact that she's had actually two successful careers in, in Q Sports. Yeah, absolutely. She. Uh, this was at a time when a, uh, a woman playing back in the century was unusual. She made a one four four. Mm. Um, obviously, the, the highest break now by a, a woman is from from Link, who made a one four seven, didn't she, at the high end uh, snooker club in Bangkok. But Alison really was a, a terrific player. Not only that was, she was, she got a, a wonderful technique, which was um, promoted and helped by the fact she was guided by Frank Callan, who was the, the granddaddy of coaches. And, you know, it all comes around full circle because we've got the World Mixed Doubles mm -hmm. coming up on ITV at the end of September, which I'm really looking forward to. And I commentated on the last televised World Mixed, World Mixed Doubles. It was in... Uh, Green's Social Club in Hamburg in northern Germany early 90s and it was Steve Davis and Alison Fisher in the final against Stephen Hendry and Stacey Hilliard and it went all the way and in the deciding frame Fisher made the decisive break mm. I can't remember exactly what it was but it was certainly a very you know useful and significant contribution and now we've got the, the World Mixed Doubles coming up but, you know, Alison Fisher is now a, uh, a dual citizen. She's also uh, a citizen of the United States. She lives in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And that could not be more appropriate because Charlotte's known as the Queen City and she is the queen of Q-Sports. There we are. What about that? What a, what, a, what, a, what a summary. Yeah, I saw her actually. I, I, the first snooker match I ever went to live, it was Jimmy White Neil Folds at the Warsaw Town Hall, Matchroom League. Pretty earthy atmosphere, you know. It wasn't the sort of sanitised sort of TV-style atmosphere. And she played a frame against a local player, one frame before it all started, like a sort of warm-up act. And you can imagine, you know, there were a few sort of inappropriate things called out and so on. She completely ignored it all. She beat the guy and actually just proved how good she was. And I thought, fair play, you know, because this was... It's a different time to now, you know. It, it, was, it was kind of... Yeah, it was maybe less progressive, should we say. Um, but, yeah, she was uh, great for the game, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad she, she's doing so well in America. And, like you say, the mixed doubles, we'll just talk about that briefly. Uh, it's a real opportunity to, A, to prove that, you know, that it is an open game, which it is. We know that women can play on the tour. But also just something a bit different, which I think a lot of people say, you know, they like the tournaments we have, but it's actually an opportunity to, to just see a different side of snooker. Definitely, yeah. I, I really am pleased that it's... Um 
alternate visits rather than alternate shots. I mm, think yeah. we have scotch doubles in pool at the, the World Cup, and I think that's fine. But I think in snooker, if you'd had alternate shots, I think that would have been too much of a, an interruption to rhythm. So I think I like the fact it's alternate shots. And as you say, it's something different. It's a two-day event, which I think could be really revolutionary in taking the game forward in so many different ways. And of course, two of the sessions, I believe, are going to be on mm. the main ITV channel, mm. which is phenomenal for the game, isn't it? It takes the game to, to a whole new audience, and it's bound to be good for the circuit in general. Yeah, and uh, of course it uh, precedes the British Open. We'll stop there, Phil. Thank you very much. We will return with more of this, I'm sure, in the future. So that's it for another week. Uh, we are proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their new, sorry, their other podcast. There is a new one, actually, uh, featuring David Seaman, um, the former England goalkeeper. Uh, so uh, I was going to say we're in safe hands, but that seems a, a, an unforgivable pun. Uh you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. As I said at the start, we've had a few, few mails in this week. I will leave them until next week. Uh, there'll be no episode on Thursday. That, that horse has bolted, um, such as it was. Uh, but uh, I will sign off, as I always do, with the simple words, or word indeed, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.